of losing money in the stock market roller coaster? Frustrated with the government taxing you into oblivion? Worried about inflation? How do you prepare for so many financial uncertainties? Welcome to the show that will help you develop your game plan. The Financial Quarterback with Josh Jelinski. Josh is a noted financial advisor and president of the Jelinski Advisory Group. And he's here to answer your questions. Call into the show at 800-321-0710. 800-321-0710. Now let's kick off your financial future. Here's Josh Jelinski. Hi, everybody. This is Josh Jelinski, the financial quarterback. We're with Garrett Gunderson, New York Times bestselling author of the new book, Money Unmasked. And for those of our listeners and viewers who are not familiar with your work, Garrett, describe your background in the financial industry. Well, you know, you and I kind of got a similar start way back in the day. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, uh, I started in the financial services field by... um, basically peddling life insurance initially and mutual funds. And then in the year 2000, when the market started to go down, that's when my real education began. And I started to figure out like, how do I help people become more efficient with their money and plug financial leaks and get their financial office in order? And that was kind of what it evolved to. And then really got into the world of financial coaching and organization uh, and a little bit less on the product side as time went on and referred all that out. Sold that business in 2021, did a comedy special because... Why not? Sounds like a midlife crisis to a degree, right? Going and doing comedy, but we actually filmed a comedy special that got picked up and it'll come out in 2024. And uh, then touring around with my new book and doing a lot of speaking and children's book coming out. So yeah, I like to do anything that, you know, I end up either writing or being on stage, it seems. Fantastic. So yeah, what's up with this comedy special? I've heard about this through the grapevine. Look, man, when I was five, I just, that was my favorite thing was to like, how, you know, family parties. My uncles were hilarious and, and it just always felt like love and celebration. And so I went to Italy for a summer, had some downtime and my wife made the mistake of saying I was kind of funny, which I translated to like, I'm a comedic God, uh, because I made her kind of laugh. And then I was introduced as being hilarious at an event that I spoke at, told some jokes, went well. So I took it up as a hobby did uh, my first open mic, August of 2017. That went pretty well. Started opening for some comedians that were mainly performing in Utah. And then in 2019, when they filmed their special, there was an agent there. I was like, man, I've never seen someone do what you're doing around money. I think that you should do something around that. And finally, November of 2020, I'm like, I want to film a comedy special and went all in called the American Ream, you know, drop the D and it's about the Ream. And it's a lot around money, a little bit around my family and upbringing and some mostly real stories about that. And man, I've just had a blast doing that. And when does that come out, the special? So I've just signed a contract uh, and with a distributor, and I don't know how long it takes them to get that in the hands of the you know streaming services. Right now we're going through closed captioning and adding the credits to the end and doing a few different formats. So hopefully Q2, Q3 of 2024. Wow, that's awesome. Living your dream. Do you make any money doing that or it really has to like pick up and blow up? I've heard the first one, you lose a lot of money. And then if it's picked up on Netflix. Yeah, definitely haven't made money on the comedy special. I have, however, been hired by a handful of firms to do comedy at financial events. And they pay me like anywhere from 18 to 25 grand to do that, depending on how much time I was on stage or whether I wrote a roast and stuff like that. So I mean, that's not lucrative, but it was pretty good for something that started as a hobby. As far as the special, I'm deep in the hole right now. 
but we'll see what happens as it starts streaming. And if that turns around or if it just builds the brand up, uh, if it does nothing but what it did so far, it was one of the best investments of my life as far as enjoyment and fun and challenging and, and all those things. Yeah, they say, I mean, some of these Netflix things, you know, thinking of The Chosen, right? Uh, the, the, the hit series about Jesus's life. Yeah. The first year or two, first season or two, these guys were like deep in the hole and they had yeah. to be crowdfunded. And then it just blew up, I, I believe last year, the year before. And they finally were able to make enough money where I think they ended up selling to Lionsgate. And, um, but yeah, it, it's, it's a labor of love and then that's great. So that's fantastic. So talk about your journey from in the financial industry. Yep. And then you say, I don't want to do that anymore. I'm going to coach people. Yeah. So June 98, I started in uh, guardian life, right. And, uh, basically they called it an internship. I got paid a couple thousand a month and had to kind of earn the commissions over time for that monthly salary. But I was 19 years old, still in college. And it gave me some time to make some mistakes as far as, uh, you know, just putting people in the market, not knowing enough about it. And then when the year 2000 market started to decline, that's when, again, I was like, okay, what, what do I really, what, do, what am I really going to do? And I just started traveling everywhere, every single month that I could to find out who are the brightest financial minds and utilize my young age to be able to interview them and figure out better ways and even get them to do some business with me. And I just was like intellectually curious and ferocious about learning. And so in 2006, I dropped my, my guardian FR, field representative contract, because I was actually teaching um, at events that guardian agents were hosting. And they didn't want me to do that. And I wanted to launch a radio show and they didn't want me to do that because of compliance. And I want to write a book. And so I, I was like, look, I'm going to move more towards a monthly membership that, to start this kind of movement of what we call the producer revolution to help people learn how to create more value and embrace this producer paradigm versus a consumer condition. So one of abundance versus scarcity. And that really kind of took off. And that's when I became more in the intellectual property and coaching world and kind of building financial teams that I referred these people out to so that they could get the transactions done from the education because I wasn't going to be able to provide all that. I tried early on, but had a little boutique mortgage firm, a boutique, you know, property and casualty firm. And what I found was I was never going to do the very best thing for clients because I didn't have the wherewithal and the bandwidth and the staying power or the passion for those things. And so it was great just to find people that that was their, their jam. That's what they love to do and refer to them. And now your, your new company is what the free flow group. Yep, free flow group. So it's really using entertainment to educate. And I've finally, after all these years, building up my personal brand uh, by having a blog because, you know, hey, those things were started, what, 20 years ago? Finally, late, a little late to the party, but I love to write. So um, even I'm behind there, but I'm ahead of the curve, hopefully on the entertainment to educate type of side. And so it's, it's really free flow group as a media company using intellectual property to educate, you know, the world, but also financial advisors. And I've been, I just hosted a two day event for 25 financial advisors at my house because back in the day, I used to have a study group, got to 180 people before my business partners died in a plane crash in 06. And I just forgot how much I enjoyed that because there's a lot of kind of leverage in helping them and see all the impact it makes for them helping their clients. So really, I've got a comprehensive financial services firm using software to help support that entire process and the education, the media company, and then you know, teaching people in the financial industry. So those are kind of the three legs of what I'm up to right now. I remember one of your partners wrote this 
article. Um, the one who passed away, one of them who passed away. Remember, it made a big impact on me. Was it what was it called? The principle of economic certainty. Yeah. I, the economic value of certainty. Yeah. I just I just finished rewriting what would the Rockefellers do and put my version of that economic value of certainty as a bonus chapter at the end to kind of honor him and what he taught me, but also use my personal stories to make it more kind of current and in my voice. So yeah, less less really brought that concept into my life and world. And then we brought that to so many other clients. So I'm glad to hear it impacted you as well. You describe that for people who are unfamiliar with it. Cause I remember when, I mean, I was new, new in the business. It, it blew me away. It was like kind of a short, what was it like two pages? It wasn't a, yeah. yeah, really succinct. And it was a great encapsulation of a whole different paradigm. His article was basically talking about if you're financially independent, where you have enough cash flow to cover your expenses, then you've got the certainty, which means you can swing for the fences in other aspects and areas of your life, knowing that that's handled. So his article said, what, imagine if you had a 10-year government contract, you knew that was coming in every single month. How'd that change how you operate? Because you knew predictably the money was coming in. You didn't have to just go earn it the next day. So it was really an argument for cash flow and the limit risk. Because so many people were chasing returns and having volatility and waiting for 30 years to find out if it was going to work out. But then they are on this roller coaster ride of emotion up and down. And he said, what happens when you have certainty? It's just actually an economic value that you could be more productive knowing that your foundation is set. And because foundation isn't sexy or something people really like, you know, focus on sometimes and they neglect it, it creates that unintentional risk that actually starts to hijack their mindset and they're less abundant, less innovative, less creative because they feel more at risk. And so that's what certainty does for us is it lets us make choices knowing that something's there for us because we're not worried and that fear doesn't override our thinking. And then that when we have those clear thoughts, we can think more in the world of serving others and solving problems and creating value. So that certainty actually lets us become more productive. There's, there's an economic value to that stability. Yeah, it was powerful. So you're writing this new Rockefeller book. Describe the whole concept of the Rockefellers because you wrote this book in 2016. I thought it was really cool. I think we had you on the show because we have a big show in New York, WR Radio. And that resonated with me, but it didn't take off like I thought it would. And then all of a sudden, I've seen this Rockefeller thing everywhere on social media. So it, it's almost had this snowball effect where, where all these people are like, you want to do what the Rockefellers do with their money? And I'm sure they got it from your book, but talk about that. Well, yeah, you're right. Like those first couple of years that the book was out, we just had this like hardcover copy and we, we were putting it up on Amazon for a thousand bucks because I wanted people to come to us and drove them to our website and try to get my co-author Mike on stages. So it was a little bit slow because of our model and our pricing. And then we put it out as a paperback for like 10 bucks and started to promote it at my old firm, Wealth Factory. And then all of a sudden it sold hundreds of thousands of copies because advisors were buying it like in the dozens at a time and giving it to clients. And the whole concept was, look, the Vanderbilt family had more money than the US Treasury at one time. And yet after Cornelius Vanderbilt died and passed the money on to his son, it took nine years to double that estate. But then his son died and that was the last time that estate grew. It actually just started to diminish. And within 54 years of that time, the first Vanderbilt died broke. 
And so they had all these mansions in New York that have either been torn down or sold to other people. They own the breakers in Rhode Island. They don't anymore. They own the, the Biltmore Estates in the Carolinas. That's all gone because they learned to kind of be wealthy socialites instead of value creators. And so they destroyed one of the largest, you know, amounts of money adjusted for inflation in history. Yet the Rockefellers are on their sixth generation of passing on wealth. They're, you know, worth $20 billion or more. They have around 200 people benefiting from the trust, but not as trust fund babies. So what were the differences between the Rockefeller family and the Vanderbilt family is what the study of the book is. And so I go, you know, from side to side, kind of looking at the differences and nuances, and then just talk about what are the most simple things that anybody could do, because there's not very many people wealthy as the Rockefellers. So how can we borrow from some of that knowledge to make different financial choices today? And it's number one, what's the simplest thing you could do? Then number two, what's the next thing you could do? And then we get into some legacy factors, like creating a family constitution that's these philosophies and interests that you have personally, and you leave a signpost inside of your trust for future generations, and then use life insurance to benefit to replenish that trust over time. So the next generation isn't born into, you know, financial bondage again. And so the book's really about, about insurance heavily in the first version, the second version still has those kind of core pieces. But I've added a little bit more depth on the legacy side, because it's, you know, 10 years from the time my business partners and I wanted to write our first book, and you know, then it's almost 10 years since it, I first wrote What Would the Rockefellers Do? It's now more like What Would the Wealthy Do? Because I looked at not just the Rockefellers, but looked at like what Walt Disney did with how he handled some of his finances and you know, the Kennedy family and how they handled things. And just keep saying, how does this apply to the common person, not just the uber wealthy? And so yeah, it's, a, it's about a third longer than the first version but with a lot of like depth on that legacy side that I just didn't really have the wherewithal and understanding at the time I first wrote it that I've now learned over a lot of client interactions and uh, a lot of conversations and studies since the first version. And we're going to get to Money Unmask, your latest book as well. And also I Am Money, the children's book. But I just want to pick on the Rockefeller. I don't know. I'm sure you're aware, like their guys got like 2 million followers off the Rockefeller stuff off TikTok. It's just. Yeah, it's wild. Sometimes they even show my book on there when they're doing it. Other times they don't. They do these, you know, like I've had people that I've coached that do little mini documentaries on it. You know, the thing is, I created the context, but I didn't create the concept. You know, yeah. I, I wrapped it really well in the book and I'm glad that it kind of inspired. And look, the reason that book sold so many copies were financial advisors buying it. So I can't really feel like I missed the boat because I didn't do TikTok. It's just not in my personality at this point. Yeah. And I'm glad that someone's getting it out there. And maybe I just need to reach out to them and team up with this new version and get them to, to promote my new book, you know? Yeah, it, it's, it's just one of those things that just like snowballed. And yeah, I mean, you didn't invent, I guess, the concept. Yeah. But but I, I think you popularized it in a nice framework. So so what are some lessons you've learned on the rewrite of the book? Yeah, the, the main thing is there's this family legacy ring that I write about, which is number one, the family office, which I talk about in the first version. But because most people aren't worth $300 million, they can't just afford to have their own financial team that works exclusively for them. So it's how do you build out that office um, regardless of where you're starting? and why that's important and, and how you work towards that over your life. Then the second thing is the family retreat structure, which is your rituals, your traditions, and the symbols that every major organization and religion have, but most families neglect these days. But if you start to get that, you start to 
solidify the chances of the wealth staying from generation to generation because you start investing in your heirs. You actually invest some time into them. You talk about these concepts and that actually becomes one of the more fun parts of legacy. And then finally, the family constitution, which is a preamble to someone's trust. And it says, here's the things that we've learned and here's some signposts we wanna leave behind. And these are just statements and philosophies that you can use as guidance to be more dynamic as you build a board of trustees that once you're gone, help kind of navigate this whole thing rather than just legalese. And so I really invested more time in that family constitution side of things and sharing some pieces that I did in the first book. I shared kind of like extracted some of those pieces. This time I'm giving an entire workbook for everybody that buys the book, what it's called the Legacy Toolkit where they get the full structure of how to build family retreat, where they get the full structure of how to build family constitution, and they get the building blocks for building a trust and paying their kids and teaching them how to be more wise with money. And so that's a whole other dimension. I think that if I were to be critical of the first book is, I just spent a lot of time on properly structured, overfunded whole life insurance, and I didn't even say it that clearly, um, but I did kind of get a little bit redundant in talking about that. So I was able to take out a little bit of that redundancy and instead dedicate it to some of these legacy aspects because the feedback we got on the book last time was, man, these legacy things really changed the way I view my family and my money when it comes to passing it on for generations. And I'm like, well, that's pretty amazing considering I wrote the book primarily to pitch insurance initially. I mean, it's you know, like the, that. And, and somehow it has almost 2,200 views on Amazon that are like 4.6 stars. Not bad for a book, primarily about insurance. So I thought it was it merited the dedication towards a legacy that also encapsulates a lot of the Rockefeller method and what other pe wealthy people do to get past the third generation. No, I love that. And I'm excited because I I've been braced a lot of those concepts with my own family, but it is tough because you have your book, Lee Brower had his, you know, Brower Wealth yeah. Quadrant, yep. but it is tough to find a, I don't know, like a synopsis of the strategy. and then. What about the legal structure? I know you're not an attorney, but I always find that's a difficult thing to find the right attorney that like believes in these concepts. Yeah, and I, you know, my attorneys have influenced me on these concepts over the years, sharing things that are in the book. Like there's a letter from Henry Phipps that run that started Bessemer Trust, which you know came from uh, being part of the and Andrew Carnegie companies, and so like just seeing how they grew to ten billion dollars inside of that from the money they started with and how they left signposts versus mandates. And so these attorneys have helped me see, if you have a decent amount of wealth, you can look at an asset protection trust, which means it's you know irrevocable, yet you get to choose your distribution trustee, so you still have access to your money and you can follow the Rockefeller tenant of own nothing, control everything. And so all of a sudden you can move things out of your state without having it be out of your touch or out of your reach, which a lot of the kind of you know, planning of the past kind of had. So, you know, having that as kind of the centerpiece and for wealthier people, having some type of holding company that then owns their interest in other companies as they have additional ventures and investments and things like that. So it kind of flows through to the main holding company to simplify from a tax perspective and also to be able to maximize the tax write-offs in the holding company without having partners in the other companies feeling like you've overtaken the, the profitability through tax deductions. So I know that's kind of a mouthful, but you know I found a, a good handful of attorneys that just really buy into what I'm talking about in this because before they even read the book, we're already setting up legal structures consistent with what I'm teaching about because it was really from attorneys that I learned about 
the Rockefeller method from the trust aspect and how that was set up. And yeah, if you're really wealthy, maybe it's offshore trust. But for the most part, I like to see domestic trusts, even though they don't provide quite as much security, but they're not quite as onerous to get to your money and you know the, the, those factors. So I, I have a handful of attorneys that could implement everything that I'm talking about in the book, like no problem, understand it. They're all congruent and aligned with different firms. Yeah, no, that's important because sometimes like we refer to attorneys and then the attorney completely screws everything up the way they want to do it and some of them are a little boilerplate at times and have their process and yeah totally before we go to money and mass anything on the whole rockefeller concept we didn't bring up that i should bring up yeah i don't buy the book till after february 1st 2024 because that's when it's going to be the updated expanded version and i think you need a whole lot more out of it plus you buy it now i don't get paid it that's a that's a version that's with a different firm that, that uh, you know, has access. It's I'm supposed to get paid. I just don't know how to how to find where it sits because it's not directly at Amazon. It's you know, printed from something that else. is funny because I have a best-selling book with Harper Collins, and I have no clue. I'm not getting paid anything from it. I'm like, where's that money going? Yeah, I have three books I don't get a dollar for when they sell. This is a good tip because I know you've had Amazon best-selling books. You've had New York Times best-selling books. I've only wrote one book. The one tip I would give to everybody is self-publish because it's like, I mean, we've sold a lot of copies. My book, I have no access and you don't make much money. You get an advance and it's like- There's also one thing to consider, which is called co-publishing, which allows you to have the distribution of a publisher, but you still have all the rights to the book and you determine what goes goes in it or changes or not. And then you get the chance to run it like a self-publishing campaign as well. So they can actually get it into bookstores if that matters to you. And they can do co-ops where you can get it into airports. Um, and But at the same time, you can just do it yourself. If you end up selling large quantities of books, you can just send it off on your own if you want, or even from their warehouse directly to the customer. So a co-publisher might be a consideration. There are additional fees. There are you know storage fees and there might be design fees and things like that. But it still lets you kind of hit the lists if that matters. But I don't, you know, I don't know if they matter all that much. I do have a publisher for I Am Money, and that's my kids' book. And I just that's don't cool. know anything about kids' books. And this publisher has been phenomenal at bookings and 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 marketing. And it's one of three kids' books that they have this this that's coming awesome. year. So it's not like they're overburdened on it. They've got a big sales force. I really think this book's probably going to outsell all my other books because. People read kids' books cover to cover, and it's really my co-author sold three million copies of kids' books, and so she did a phenomenal job of taking the content, making it fun, making it simple, yet keeping it really impactful, which is really hard to do. I tried it before for our kids, and mine sucked, but thank God she's really good at it. And where where do you get that book? Is it is it available now? Or yeah, uh, it's January second, twenty twenty four. The book comes out. Barnes and Noble, Amazon, you know, um, any yeah, you'll. You'll see uh, there's there's a soft cover that comes out on Barnes and Noble as well because they're really trying to get it into schools. But the hard cover is only six bucks more and it's way sexier. It's yeah, uh, you know, I love it. it's happy. It makes me happy. No, I have seven kids, so they're, they're getting that. Nice. So it's exciting. So uh, let's talk about money unmasked. Yeah. What inspired you to write the book? First off, I wrote the book like. I haven't been the one to sit down and write all my books. I've had amazing ghostwriters for the early books when I was scared to write. So I just love and fell in love with the process of writing. But in 2008, I was really frustrated because I was excited that Killing Sacred Cows came out. But at the same time, I was dealing with a lot of chaos with my 
first year, my business wasn't growing. And, you know, I was having to figure out how to navigate this uh, crazy recession in the economy and was overextended in real estate. And as I was looking at my mistakes and saying, how can I learn from them? One thing I realized is like, I viewed money very different than my wife did. And I, and I worked with a lot of clients by this time. And I was like, they had kind of different ways they viewed money. I was like, I want deep research on what's someone's money persona. How many personas are out there? What impacts that persona? What's the shadow side that comes from scarcity? What's the winning side? I wanted someone else to write it. I didn't want to write it because I don't like researching, but I did find a team that helped me research. I did do work for years and years and years. Here we are. The book came out October of 2023, and I started to write it way back in 2017. So it took quite a while for the book to be written because it took almost like, like nine years, eight years to figure out money personas and how they worked and have enough research and work with enough people to determine you know, all the different aspects of it. But once I discovered, I was like, I have to write a book about this because this is the subconscious belief system that governs our money behavior. And it's the thing that dictates our success or our failure more than anything else. And then it was, why is it we're so either afraid of money or attracted to money? Why is it some people are chasing money and other people are like hoarding it and holding on to it? And so once I understood those money personas, I'm like, what's the context look like where we can learn how to make more money, keep the money we make, and then grow our money that's consistent with who we are and teaching people how to profit from the ideas up front or tap into hidden capital like mental and relationship capital instead of just chase financial capital. And so this became kind of my life's work. This became the thing I was most passionate about. And I think it's my best book by far. And I just think that our relationship to money is indicative of the relationship that we have to ourselves. And wherever we're abusive to ourselves, we're usually abusive to money. Wherever we haven't resolved or loved ourselves, we usually try to get money to do it, do the job for us, and it's inadequate to do it. So if we can heal our relationship with money, put it in its proper place and understand it, it just liberates us and we can have a whole new level of freedom. So that's what Money on Mass is about. And I'm dedicating the next 20 years of my life to help make it the most influential financial book of all time. I mean, it's really, I think it's important work. When people understand it, it helps them feel so much better about life and, and understand the context of money and the concept of money. So what do you mean by money persona? What, what are the money personas? So the four shadow personas are the miser who plays a game called preservation. They end up with funds, well, that they won't spend because they're addicted to holding on to what they've got. There's the conservative that plays a game called accumulation. They end up with funds they can't spend because they're afraid, oh, am I ever going to have enough? Um, then there's the striver playing the game called status, who thinks they could just work harder to make more money, but inevitably burn out. And there's the high roller playing the game called opportunity but often goes bankrupt because they take on too much risk and cut corners, which leads to short-lived riches. So those are the four shadow personas that come from scarcity, isolation, selfishness, zero-sum zero games. It, you know, it's very limiting mindset, but there is a winning side that comes from co-creation and, and collaboration that comes from a place of abundance. And so instead of a miser, you have a mindful manager. Mindful manager is detail-oriented. They're efficient. They're great at improving things. You know, the, the great thing about them is when they look at an organization, they might find out where you can, you know, enhance ideas or reduce waste. Or instead of a conservative, you have the planner on the winning side. The planner is a stable, thoughtful, and strategic person. 
They're instrumental for organizations looking to, you know, not only maximize efficiency, but monitor the effectiveness of any initiative. So again, it's looking at the bigger picture and beyond themselves. Or so the striver, you get a creator, which is an artist, an inventor, an entrepreneur. They lead with innovation and ingenuity and they create more value. Or instead of a high roller, the winning side is the catalyst, a visionary, a connector, a mover and shaker. They think and play big and show us ways we can all win together. So it's a matter of which side, which money persona are you and what leads you to the shadow side or what leads you to the winning side. And there's certain formulas that I share in the book that really help with that co-creation and and collaboration being a small piece of it, actually a big piece of it, but there's kind of some things to fill in that make a huge difference in bridging that gap. But once you know what your money persona is, your employees or a spouse or your kids, you can know what their strengths are that can help you not only stay on track, but get further if you understand those strengths. But if you don't, you can see it as opposition and frustration. It could create fighting and friction. So, I mean, man, you think about money is the number one reason people list for divorce. So I saw this book as being like, People knew their money personas. Maybe we can reduce some of that financial stress and open up a lot more possibilities moving forward and have a much better, richer life. How does somebody reduce their financial stress? Taking the money persona quiz is very helpful. You know, garrettgunderson.com forward slash quiz. Another thing is they can go back to their childhood and ask, what's their first memory of money? And was that a good memory? Was it a difficult memory? And what do they say money says about them and who they are. And when we can identify what those earliest memories are, we start to see these antidotes or we start to see these footprints that led to what created money stress in the future. Maybe we feel like if we don't have enough, we're not safe and our family's at risk. Or if we don't have enough, we're not valuable enough in the world, not worthy. And so when we can look back into some of the childhood wounds we have around money and stories, we start to see the stressors that are created later on. Now, I do know if you've got six months of your expenses set aside in savings, tends to reduce stress. If you're financially independent, where you have enough cash flow to cover your basic expenses, that reduces stress. When you find out ways to plug leaks so you don't overpay on the government or to interest or overpay on non-performing investment fees or improper structures with insurance, that reduces stress. When you know where you're set or not set financially, so that you can turn those things where you're like, I'm not set into knowing that you're set, it will reduce financial stress because you feel like you have a solid foundation when money's no longer intimidating because it seems confusing or like spreadsheets or something that you don't understand and understand what it means. It's a man-made efficient tool that it's simply a way to exchange with one another. It doesn't represent our value. It just stores the value that we've created in the past. And even though it may not reflect our potential, it's also something we can tap into in order to be more productive But if we're afraid of it, we're not going to tap into it. If we're hoarding it, then it's going to be at odds with us. Or if we're chasing it, we never find that joy. So here's the thing that reduces our money stress the most. We design the life we don't want to retire from. We create the game worth winning. We find work that is worthwhile, that we enjoy. And we find and accept money as a byproduct of the value that we create instead of hiding from it or running to it. And that's what I call win first, then play. So knowing our money persona, building our peace of mind fund, turning our I'm not set into I'm set and knowing it when it comes to safety and security and money investing, focusing on cash flow and economic independence and plugging those financial leaks and then investing back into ourselves so we improve our quality of life, we improve our skill set so we can make more money and we improve our cash flow so that we're less reliant upon us working each day. 
money stress starts to go down. Now, knowing our money percent of our spouse can drastically reduce our money stress because now we know where their strengths are and where they might get into survival and how that can create conflict and have new conversations. We can ask those questions of ourselves and the ones we love where we shaped our money beliefs so we can start to see where that's serving us or sabotaging us. So that's it. I'm pretty impressed with the answer I just gave, to be honest. That's a lot of ways to reduce money stress. There you go. That's great. My wife and I, we don't talk about money. We don't really fight about it. And uh, she has no desire to talk about it. Yeah, that's if you're not fighting about it, that's great. I mean, know? it's more of just we share the common vision. I think the biggest thing is sharing a worldview or sort of a sense of per- like, I, maybe we do share more of what you're talking about yeah. with family constitution than we believe. So it's sort of, we've been married for 20 years, so married young and kind of have like an intuitive sense. Well, maybe if you're, if you're philosophically aligned, the details don't matter. So yeah, much. that might be. I, my wife doesn't want to sit down and look at the financials all the time. Yeah. But she wants to know that we have a certain amount of money set aside in our cash values. That's great. She wants to make sure that we're not spending more than what comes in. When I tell her, hey, you know, we spent a lot the last year. Maybe we just take it a little bit easy the next few months. She wants to know why. Like, is it, are we really in trouble or are we just being reckless with our spending? And so as long as we have those conversations, you're right. Her and I don't talk about money all that often. If it's an expense under $500, we don't talk about it. If it's more than that, we're going to have a brief conversation um, and say now or later. You know, So once you have an automated system and once you're aligned philosophically, it starts to get a whole lot easier. When we were struggling in 08, we talked about money all the time because it was like, we have money for these bills and when can we do this? And should we just go get the shampoo out of the basement? Should we put water in the shampoo? Like we were struggling because I had 109 properties and you know, my business partners went bankrupt. And so I took on those properties that were hemorrhaging during a tough economy. So we had to communicate a lot more about money then than we do right now, you know? So talk about that because people don't know your story. Um, you were sort of a mini, I don't know, legend, like a little bit of a, a young wonder kind in the yeah. financial industry. So this isn't like, so if you've never heard of Garrett Gunderson, it's not like he was one of these people who said he was broke, he was running a very financial practice. Yeah, talk about that, because that's kind of an interesting, because you hear these I, stories about very successful people and they go bankrupt. And you wonder like, how could that have happened? Yeah, I mean, in 2006, my partners died in a plane crash and I exhausted for four months a lot of our corporate funds to try to keep all 42 employees and all three offices. And we just had a lot of grief that was going on and we had a lack of systems because we lost two major partners of the four of us. And so it was, it hemorrhaged a lot of cash coming out on the other side. I had a really good year in 2007, but I also, you know, got a little overextended in real estate because I took on some of the properties that they were involved in, um, with people that I knew I got more property than I could personally handle. And I had to start hiring team. And then when I had to deal with those things, because the economy started to go down, then I started to spend less time in my business. And my business started to decline for the first time. I mean, from 1998 to 2007, my business grew every single year. I reinvested in it. It was building strong cash flows. But now I had this big 45,000 square foot building that I was 45% owner in. And I had that responsibility. I had 109 doors that I had responsibility for that. And when the market changed, people stopped paying their rent business partners went bankrupt and I was holding the bag. So for two years, I'm exhausting a lot of my funds and resources just to get to the other side. 
And that took a lot of effort and that effort, again, neglecting time in my business and therefore not, you know, my wife is going, Hey, are we okay? And I got really gray and I got really <laughs> overweight during that time because it was stressful as hell. But I just got to the place where I got overextended because I thought I was Midas. I thought everything I, I touched turned to gold. I thought it was always going to work. And this is my first time going through a tough economy. And I made it to the other side and I didn't declare bankruptcy. And there were moments I was embarrassed because I wrote Killing Sacred Cows. And I'm meeting with bank trustees and my attorney saying, have you read this book? It's amazing. And I'm like, dude, we're here because I have a balloon note due on this property and they won't finance it because I have too many properties and we got to work and negotiate a deal. And you're talking about my book. I was embarrassed. I was ashamed to agree, but I was resilient and resourceful. And by 2010, I had the biggest year ever in business because I stayed focused and dedicated and trusted my mentors to support me and asked what lessons I needed to learn and just stayed resilient and resourceful using those terms again to get to the other side. So yeah, I just got really lucky in real estate the first few years, which made me think I was smarter than I was. And when, when you think that it's because of you versus a market, it could be a very dangerous place. And I just got overextended. Do you, uh, are you still a big believer in real estate? I'm, I'm a believer in investor DNA. So I think the three main assets that, that drive your recurring revenue are businesses, intellectual property, and real estate. But there's all types of real estate. There's commercial real estate, there's duplexes, fourplexes, there's single family residents, there's people that do fix and flip, there's people that get involved in tax liens or bridge financing, before bank financing comes in, there's development. So I think that if you treat it like a business and it's aligned with your investor DNA, which is your values and your competencies and your drivers and you focus, it could be the right investment. But risk isn't in the investment, it's in the investor. So what kind of investor are you? I think if you just hand it off and hope that it works out, you know, it's, it's tough to go find a duplex when interest rates were low. Everybody was competing against it and it didn't make a lot of sense, you know. Um, Right now, there's a little bit more deals coming up because we've seen the change in interest rates and people are a little bit more distressed. So if you're patient and you look at deal flow, maybe real estate could be good for you. I buy real estate that I can drive to easily, that I can utilize myself, but I can also make money with that real estate by renting it out if I choose to. I don't rent out my house, but I just hosted an event for 25 financial advisors here. That would have been 20 grand going to a hotel. So it would save 20 grand and it made it feel more intimate having people over at my house. And yeah, I mean, so I, I do still like real estate, but it's only one thing. I really focus on intellectual property primarily, business secondarily, and real estate as a tertiary kind of asset that is a little bit of an inflation protection. Um, but I don't believe in having unlimited amounts or more than I can handle or having to hire really big teams for it. So it, it took me a little bit of time to be like, uh, I could be content with what I have in real estate versus thinking I always have to have more. But that doesn't mean that I'm complacent because I'm on my 10th book will come out in a year or two because I already have a manuscript for the 10th one. You know, so I'm, I, that's what I like to do is things that make sense based upon who I am. Now, that's fantastic. So elaborate on some of the financial errors that people make and how can they be circumvented? We've talked a little bit about that, but kind of another way to ask. They don't pay themselves first automatically. So it's too laborious if they have to do it themselves and they get stuck in budgeting, which constrains them. They try to save or double their returns rather than become more efficient with their money. Save money on the IRS, on interest, on non-performing investment fees, and on improper structure with insurance. And that puts a lot more money in your pocket. And it's going to do a lot better than just trying to chase a higher return with taking on too much risk. Um, people focus too much on accumulation and not enough on cash flow. That's a pretty big issue. 
they don't, uh, they're not mindful about where their money goes. And so they don't differentiate expenses. Like some expenses are productive. You put a dollar in more than a dollar comes out. Don't budget that. Keep putting in a dollar as long as more than a dollar comes out. They, they invest in things they know nothing about. They have way too much speculation. They lock money away till 59 and a half. They think they're saving tax when they're merely delaying tax. They think that money's too complicated. So they just trust someone that's probably more of a salesperson than an educator. So, I mean, I could kind of go on for days and days. As you know, I write books on the myths around money. The number one issue is people believe in a zero sum game of scarcity. So they think it's take what you can, hold on to what you get, instead of thinking in a collaborative, abundant world. And when they think it's scarcity and zero-sum game, they think irrationally, and that irration, being irrational means it destroys their wealth, and it destroys their mindset, and it prevents them from creating more exchange. So it's really about embracing the life that you love, employing more energy, and investing back into yourself. And when you invest in yourself, you increase your skill sets, and then you increase your financial savvy, and you end up with a much better situation when you have cash flow that covers your expenses, because now you have permission to live the life that you want, and you're not beholden to having to work every day in order to exchange that time for money, which can get exhausting. That zero-sum thing, I don't know if people really understand what you mean by that. So describe it one more time. Zero-sum is win-lose, right? Just I win, you lose. Yeah. I do think that a majority of people think of money that way. Yeah, and if, if you gave me money today, I can take that money and use it again. And then whoever I give it to gets to use it again. That's velocity. The more times money exchanges hands, the more wealth is created. And if we went back 200 years, the world had a lot less wealth than we do today. Because human life value, people have organized property value to be more useful. We've had technology so that we could travel um, faster. We have more access to a lot of things that didn't even exist in the past. And we built on top of those so that we built from the ideas that we're actually able to be more efficient and effective and provide a lot more for a lot more people. So zero sum game is, hey, I buy this and it's gone. Like there's only so much pie. If I have a piece, there's less pie for you. But money and pie are definitely not the same thing. Even if there was a limited amount of money, there's an unlimited number of times it can exchange hands. We can use it to buy computers and clothes and food and shelter and entertainment like comedy and concerts. So basically, the more times money exchanges hands, the more value is created. And if we understand that money is a game of value creation, and the more value we create, the more dollars will follow that value, we can all end up wealthier because we produce more goods, services, and experiences for each other rather than holding on to it and hoarding it. So I don't invest in options because options are win-lose. I don't invest in things that the only one person wins at the expense of another, like gambling, because one person knew and the other person didn't, and we're just taking. Like You can invent a new business, invent a new technology, and multiple people could win. You could buy my kid's book, have your kids be better off financially, and that $15 that you gave me is worth less than the $15 of education that they received, and that means we both ended up wealthier. That's the key. You have your own unique abilities in Dan Sullivan's terms or my terms. You have a sole purpose. And if you understand that, it's unique and different than anyone else on the planet, even if there's some commonalities. So there's a divinity to that diversity. And the more we use that diversity to be able to provide things that other people don't have the, the, the know-how or the insight to provide, the wealthier we all become. But if we try to save all that by doing things we hate in the name of trying to save money, and we get exhausted in the things we're incompetent in, just because we're trying to scrimp, save, sacrifice, and defer, then nobody ends up wealthier, even though we have some money in the bank account. So it's velocity, it's exchange. Those are the factors that create wealth. And you know, we get money to keep exchanging over and over again. It doesn't just disappear. 
No, this is fantastic. As we kind of round out the interview, what would you like to share with our audience that you haven't shared? Create the life you love. Create the life you don't want to retire from. Find work that's worthwhile. If you do things that you hate, slowly invest in yourself. Don't just put it into funds, put it into you. Take that leap of faith on a life that you enjoy and just know you'll make mistakes along the way. That's part of the process. But learn from the mistakes so you don't repeat them over and over again. And just know that you're worthy, you're worth it, and you're lovable. Well, thank you so much, Garrick Gunderson. Get his book, Money Unmasked. Where can we get it? Amazon? Yeah, moneyunmasked.com, amazon.com. You know, I had someone tell me they just saw it in the bookstore in Austin, Texas. So I don't know which bookstores it's in or not in, but uh, yeah, grab the book. And, you know, we've got packages that if you want me to speak, you could buy a certain number of books and I'll show up, sign or do something virtual. Uh, I like, I just want to get the book out there. So thanks for promoting it for me, Josh. Thank you so much, Garrett Gunderson, Money Unmasked. And folks, if you want a free copy of the book, I'll buy you one. If you call us and schedule your no-obligation review, 888-988-JOSH, 888-988-JOSH. Thank you so much, Garrett. Really appreciate your work. Thanks for having me, man. And I can't wait to have you on again about the new Rockefeller book. Love it. Take care.